Why, hello. Didn't see you there. Mostly because this is up. That this is audio. Uh, I wanted to say something clever, something pithy, something in story. Uh, but all I can say to you right now is that my first book is now available everywhere. So, uh, so my book is live. <laughs> oh my gosh, it feels so good to say that I published my first book. And it's available on Amazon as of today, October 1st, in print, in ebook form, and in audiobook. It's available. You can go to my website, jayakunzo.com slash book to check out more details and click the buttons to get right to the Amazon page. And I also put the link, of course, in the show notes, and it's all over my social profiles. It's... Man, today is finally the day. And and today, I thought I would do a special AMA Ask Me Anything episode of Unthinkable. And over the last month, I've been asking people to submit their questions, and I got a bunch, and and, uh, I'd like to go over those today. So we we cover a lot of topics, quite frankly, uh, behind the scenes, creating the book, the writing process, self-publishing, and the business side of it, Um, the content creation world more broadly, like podcasting, making documentary series, as I do through my company, Unthinkable Media with B2B clients, uh, creating content that's better than the average junk in a marketing capacity. We go into public speaking as a profession that comes up. I'm going to tell the most embarrassing story or at least the most difficult moment I've faced as a public speaker. And all kinds of weird but awesome things are coming up in this episode as I answer your questions today because I'm, I'm just like sort of punch drunk here, could not put together a whole coherent narrative arc, so I could think of no better way than actually hearing from you and answering your questions. Uh, but first, before we do that, I want to try something new here. I'd like to go to a sponsor. Yeah. So let's see. I got my uh, got my printout. Printout read right here. And I'm going to do, uh, got to be authentic. It's got to come from the host as we, as we know as podcast fans. So let me do this read. All right. <clears throat> what, what the, ah, what is this? Does, does this have to play every time we do an ad in a podcast? God, it's like, it's like somebody has a cocktail made of Prozac and Red Bull and then made a kid's show. Ugh, all right. All right. We're going to push on. The show must go on. Let me do the sponsor read anyway. All right, here we go. This episode of Unthinkable is brought to you by Break the Wheel, an amazing new book from Jay Akunzo. Sounds pretty neat, you guys. Neato. What, what What? the hell just happened to my voice? Okay, uh, let me try this one more time. This episode is brought to you by Break the Wheel, a new book from Jay Akunzo. This new book is... What, what the hell? Come on! What? Alright, you know, stop the music. Stop the music. Can I, can I just... Okay. Okay, let, I, let me just tell you why I wrote this book. I, I think we're, we're struggling with a really big problem in the business world today, which is that uh, finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. So, like, my question is, how the heck do we do that? I mean, we've never really been taught how to find the best approach for you, your team, your company, your customers. We're taught that there's a right and a wrong answer. And in today's internet-driven era, when there's information ubiquity and advice overload, well, there's an infinite amount of quote-unquote right answers out there. And so we glom onto those. We look for best practices and tips and tricks and cheats and hacks and gurus and all their get-rich-quick schemes. And we end up doing a lot of commodity work. 
and it, and it sucks. So, so Break the Wheel is a book about thinking for yourself in the face of endless conventional thinking. And I try to incorporate both science and story, lots of stories, into this book. And, and together we will deconstruct why we make decisions the way we do at work. You know, relying on generalized or even outdated best practices or glomming on to trends. And so when you leave the book, when you're done, you won't know what success looks like on average. You won't know how to make good decisions in general. You'll know how to make the best possible decisions for you. In other words, we're going to learn how to make great choices for our respective and unique situations. So that's what I wanted to write this book about. You know, how do we act less like experts and more like investigators? So to do that, we're going to uncover a few different psychological barriers that we must face, that we do face to make good decisions in our specific context. And then we'll deconstruct our context into three easy to understand pieces and ask the six investigative questions that we should know about to make better decisions, to act like investigators within that context. In the end, all those best practices, all the trendy ideas, the hacks, the cheats, the tips, the gurus, etc., all that stuff, they're just spokes on a wheel. First one is on top, then another, and on and on that freaking wheel spins. And it leads straight to the one place we don't want to be, which is average. So I say let's push past commodity work. Let's escape that endless cycle and let's break the wheel. That is what the book is all about, and it's available now on Amazon in print, ebook, and audiobook versions. So forget the ad, screw the best practice for how that's supposed to sound. The convention is awful. I just wanted to tell you what the book is about and why I think it's so important for our quest to do our best work. I hope you'll check it out. So without any further ado, and you know how much I love and cherish my ado, uh, I wanted to dive into the AMA portion of this episode. And the first question, and actually it's multiple questions, this person was ambitious, comes from Michelle Park Lizette. And Michelle, I hope I pronounced that, that last name right, Michelle Park Lizette. She's a content marketer in Cleveland. Michelle asks, what were your reasons for self-publishing rather than waiting for a publisher to buy the book? What was the hardest lesson learned on the business side of self-publishing? And did, did you audience test the book? And then she says, can you tell I have plans to write? Uh, yes, I can, Michelle. Yes, I can. And I wish you tons of success doing that. Uh, so here, here we go. Let's go one at a time here. So the reasons I chose to self-publish, and make no mistake, self-publishing is an investment. A lot of books cost money. They don't make money. Um, so the reasons I wanted to self-publish, it really can be boiled down to control and creativity or creative control. So a, a big publishing house and really that whole industry, it was born in a different era. And so they act like companies that were born in a different era where they have some people and some of those companies that are trying hard with the right intent to evolve. But ultimately, a lot of their ways are stuck in the past and really not meant for, you know, an era where I can be speaking to you directly through a basically a radio show without having to go through terrestrial radio. You know, that is not the world where traditional publishing houses were born. And so as a result, there's a lot of old things I disagree with. You know, they basically own the IP. They take a lion's share of sales, even though, you know, for me, sales are not that important, which we, we will get into on this episode. Uh, but these, these publishers, they have ideas and notes and demands and pre-existing processes. They don't quite get modern marketing, but they, they, they try to offer marketing support as one of their value adds. And, you know, certainly for me as a 10-year veteran of content marketing, I just, I didn't need that. Uh, and then there's me. I like to move 
at my pace, which is way faster than publishers. So just for context, some of these organizations would first opt to publish you under their label and then basically take like nine to 12 months before the book actually comes out. And for me, I officially began writing this book, I think December of 2017, and and it came out today, October 1st, 2018. So that would be less than a year from the moments I started scoping the book, then to the writing and editing process, and then all the steps to actually publish it and make it a book that you can purchase and have in your home. So publishers can take that exact same time frame, let's say, what, 10 months, to just do the publishing portion. Basically, you write the manuscript, and then they still take my entire process to just get it out in the world. Uh, so there's that stuff. And then there's the fact that I, you know, self-awareness, very big theme in the book itself, self-awareness. I don't really do bosses well, which is one reason I love being an entrepreneur and what I'd call not a solo creator, but a collaborative creator. I like to work with people who can push me and debate me and, and make me better. But I don't like when somebody is in charge of whether or not I keep advancing in my career. I, I want to be in charge of that end to end. And I also want the work to speak for itself. So why did I self-publish? Lots of reasons, but the big one, creative control. All right. Now, the second question was the hardest lesson learned on the business side, which is to set aside ego, like ditch the desire to be on the bestseller lists, which by the way, are often gamed systems. Surprise, surprise. And they're often self-funded in that a lot of authors will buy tons of their own books to boost numbers. But you have to set aside ego and know what a book is for, for it to be effective for your business. So for me, you know, I honestly do most of my work for me. I may get paid to give a speech by a client or to create a show for a client, but I always find a way to find joy and intrinsic motivation in order to bring my full self to the work. And this is in total harmony with the results somebody else seeks from my work. Because if I'm not bringing my full self, I don't do my best work. If I don't do my best work, the results that a client would be seeking from me are worse. So, so this book was really for me. It's a chance to go deeper with ideas and stories that either I would told already on my podcast and wanted to see if there was more meat on that bone or I just had rattling around in my brain and I wanted to get out in the world. Uh, and it was a chance to go deeper with people who already know and enjoy my work. So for example, I didn't give away a ton of free prizes, at least not publicly, to incentivize people to buy this book. Because in my world, if you need prizes to support my work, you're not the right audience for me. You know, I'm not trying to sell a ton of these books. I'm trying to get them to the right people. And whether that's an individual who just listens to my show or somebody who hires me, it's, I just dislike this idea that like I put so much work and effort into this thing and then I have to lace it with all these incentives. You know, it's like if you're trying to be a chef and cook a meaningful meal and then you're like, oh, by the way, we topped it with lots of chocolate and sugar. Um, I don't want to play that game. I want to play the long game. I don't want to shill my wares for a quick infusion of either cash or fame. But when you go for those bestsellers, people really go after that stuff. So I guess in conclusion here, I've always been about resonance and reach, but the hardest lesson I learned is is because I, you know, entered the book industry, so to speak, for the first time, it was just like when I first entered the marketing world 10 years ago and got sucked into this false belief that reach is the most important thing. So I had to fight those urges all over again with the book and remember what this is for and who this is for, which if you're hearing this right now, this is for you. So there you go. That's my hardest lesson learned on the business side.
Last thing, and this is actually something that's going to affect everybody doing any creative project. So I love this question. Did I audience test the book? Kind of. And I'll get more specific. I think with with any project, you try to find a Venn diagram overlap of what you want to make and what others want to receive. And I think I found that with this book, but mostly because of how I constantly create little or maybe different versions of the stories and ideas in the book elsewhere. In other words, lots of the the things in the book were aerated publicly, and I would say that word aerated, over the past two years, either on social media or in my speeches or on my show or in my newsletter. And basically, I was able to see what worked, what resonated deeply and emotionally with people. I either mentally or actually in, say, Evernote, logged what worked and then what got the biggest emotional reaction, in other words. And I kept building on top of that, both with future content uh, on all these different channels that I run, sure, uh, which helped me keep exploring, but also with the book. It was like, okay, people really, really love that one. I got a lot of replies over email, let's say. There's something there. I should continue using that story in speeches and put it in my book. Uh, Let me give you an example. Say you were thinking of writing a book and you had this big idea Uh, let's say it was for an audience of creators and you want to write a book to help people stop agonizing over starting their projects and just start shipping already. Huge problem, right? Huge, huge problem. I just need to meet you for coffee. I got to keep researching. I got to buy the the tech. You want to inspire people with your book to start. Okay. You could just go and write that book or create the podcast or the big asset like a newsletter, or you can do what I call up the mountain, down the mountain. So up the mountain, you start with something low friction that accesses an audience with that idea. So like you could send out a tweet and say something like, um, the job is not to be creative. The job is to create. And what you're looking for isn't like a viral tweet. You basically want emotional responses. You want a small number of people reacting in a big way. Uh, not that that's final success, but it's a sign you're on the right path. You're onto something. You've almost like struck gold. It's I liken it to going to the beach with one of those stupid metal detectors. Like you're looking for that beep. And then when you get it, you're like, aha, let's dig down deeper here. Uh, so, and by the way, in Break the Wheel, a big part of the methodology is knowing how to use those people's emotional reactions. I call it looking for your true believers. And I explain where that concept comes from and how to use that to inform better work. So look for true believers with that tweet. If you get a few, elevate it higher up the mountain. Do something higher friction, like write a blog post. Same deal. Did you get an emotional reaction? Keep going. It becomes a podcast episode or the whole concept of a show or it makes the speech or the book. So that's going up the mountain. And then you can go right back down it once you have the big thing. So for me, I wrote the book, right? And so I should now rip out one of the big ideas that was previously tested and proven and write a standalone article about it and link back to the book. And the article should go out as a tweet and and so forth. Um, So you go up the mountain, down the mountain. Basically, so I used to run cross country in high school and my coach would say, never run a hot race cold. That's what we're doing here. We're doing warm-ups. So I don't I didn't test ideas for the book per se. I'm not quite so objective in that I really do have a subjective lens. I care what works and what doesn't. And and so br- bringing that subjective sense of taste to the process changes it from a test to 
a warm-up in my mind because what I'm trying to do is ensure I'm ready to take this idea to the next level. I'm not trying to see exactly if like, oh, this doesn't make sense at all. I should kill it. I have conviction around the ideas. I'm just looking for the right way to articulate those ideas where I find that Venn diagram overlap where people also care about, about the idea the way I'm articulating it. All right. So that was a lot. But Michelle, thank you for those questions. I would be happy to do a video call with you and chat about self-publishing if you want. But then you have to promise me that you will actually write the book because I don't want to be that person that gives you the dopamine hit that's like, I'm making progress. And then you actually don't. It's like going to the gym. It's like, I'd rather you go to the gym than talk about going to the gym, feel good about that, and then not actually work out. Um, So I'm happy to do a video call about self-publishing. We could invite whoever is listening if anybody wants to join me and maybe Michelle, just email me. I'm j at unthinkablemedia.com. And same for you, Michelle. Email me if you want to do this call. The qualification is that whoever emails me genuinely wants to talk about self-publishing and that you, Michelle, after this call, you actually put together a book treatment. Okay, so how about that? All right, next question is from Jill Golden. What's up, Jill? Jill and I have known each other for a while, and I always joke that she looks nothing like her online avatar because her avatar is a typewriter. So I have I have really good jokes today. <laughs> so Jill asks, what are the best resources I've come across to get started podcasting from the technical angle to the story arc and so on? Um, so I know some of these resources exist, like NPR has a, an education center. Uh, one of my favorite agencies that makes podcasts is called Pacific Content, and they publish some great, great stuff on their blog and newsletter, uh, Pacific Content. But I really, really don't research too much. Instead, I use this magical app that always seems to come up in every single project I've ever encountered, which is called Side Projects. Like literally I make a side project. That's how I learned this stuff. So the way I operate, I will consume a bunch of stuff I like, not intentionally, like I'm looking for inspiration. It's just that I get deep into consuming things because I enjoy it. And then I'm like, huh, this is amazing. It would be so cool to create that or or my version of that. I'm going to try doing that. And then I do, and it's terrible, and I keep fighting it and keep trying stuff, and maybe I don't even publish it. And then eventually, I hit what feels like some immovable wall, and at that point, I'm going to go and dig up what I'd call like a a very specific point solution type of article or answer from a person on social media. But I only do that part when I feel like I absolutely have to because I've tried as much of it as I could alone. So unthinkable. What you're listening to now is normally a really highly produced story style show. And I learned all of those mechanics and processes just by trying to do it and trying to mimic my heroes and then breaking down those heroes into component parts and inserting who I am and my own sensibilities. I just spent a weird amount of time tinkering. And and that wasn't, by the way, that wasn't huge blocks of time at first. It was like little moments here and there when my old day job allowed it. And then once I found like something I loved, like, oh man, I really want to do this. I started waking up early every Thursday and Friday for a few months in a row back when I lived in Boston. And I'd walk down the street to a coffee shop and I would write unthinkable. So the only thing that I ever turned to during that period was A, tinkering on the side, just turning over the problem, just trying stuff, being bad at first so that I could get better. Uh, B, every so often a quick Google search for podcast equipment, and then I'm done. Like I didn't lump together a bunch of research on tech. I'm like, what is my budget? What do I need? I'm done. I'm out. I'm back to the craft because tech does not matter 
at all. It's always about the wizard, not the wand. Tech is so incremental in any job, in most jobs, especially when you're being creative and creating content. Uh, And the last thing is, I also, I did end up reading an amazing book called Out on the Wire, which is about some of the biggest and best shows and creators of those shows ever. It's, It's written as a comic strip, but it's amazingly helpful. Out on the Wire. But my punchline here is that if you want to write, write. If you want to speak, speak. If you want to podcast, podcast, you just, just start trying stuff. Know that it's going to be terrible right away, but frame it as the goal is to constantly improve, not the goal is to be good. Because with anything you do, if you're doing it for the first time, that should be the worst version of that thing. So in agonizing over where to look and, and what to research and who to know, you're just delaying the improvement process. So you might as well start and get that process going. So that's how I frame that question. Okay. Woo, you got me fired up with that one. That's a topic I really love. Uh, and so is this one, by the way. This is from Angela Hirsch, the world's greatest library marketer, I would say. Uh, she's from Cincinnati. And she asks, have you ever had a public speaking event that went completely sideways? So, I like to think the public speaking gods have been pretty favorable to me, but this one event seemed to bottle up all of their wrath from all of my speaking career. Uh, And it amounted to a pretty crazy moment, but a story that I love to tell. So, I was at this speaking event, uh, or at this event rather, called Experience Inbound, and I was the one of the keynote speakers to kick off the day on back-to-back days. So this event is it's a two-day event, same agenda in two different locations. Day one is at Miller Park, which is home of the Milwaukee Brewers, and day two was at Lambeau Field, home of the Green Bay Packers. So it's hosted by these two great agencies out in uh, in Wisconsin, Stream Creative and the Widert Group. And so they literally took all the speakers from the first day and we drove north to Green Bay and did the same agenda the second day. So uh, the whole thing was pretty damn sweet. I loved touring the stadiums. I brought my brother-in-law because he's a huge Packers fan and we ate a ton of cheese curds and did the tour and drank great local beer. It was awesome. However, halfway through, so on the second day, I started getting like really sick. I'm talking like head to CVS and buy yourself your own little version of CVS kind of sick. You know, like the head cold, the tired feeling, the achiness, the tickling in your throat. Uh, not not good if you're a public speaker, let's say. Yeah. So I got up there on day two. I, I kick off the event and, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be the energy guy, the story guy, the inspirer, and I love that role, but my voice keeps cracking. And I actually made a couple jokes when it did so about like, I was like, Aaron Rodgers, give me some strength, man. And people liked it because uh, we were, you know, home of the Green Bay Packers. But I, I, I just kept thinking, Like, just get me through this speech so I can chug more tea and put half a bag of lozenges down my throat and just sleep. And uh, and when you really know a speech cold, you get this weird new ability, this new monologue happening in your brain that you didn't think was possible, which is while you're saying and delivering your speech and your performance, you're actually thinking something else. It's really quick and and micro moments like you can somebody gets up to leave and you're like, oh, why is that guy leaving or a bit really lands like the joke landed and you think, oh, good, that landed. I'll try it that way tomorrow. But you're continuing to talk out loud. It's bizarre. Um, So, you know, I was in the throes of that and I'm telling this story, but in my head I'm going, oh, no, there's a loud moment coming up and I'm going to deliver this punchy line either really well or I'm going to sound like a 13 year old boy going through puberty. And so that's less than ideal, but then it got worse. 
I basically hit the beginning of my final story. I got through that loud moment fine. And then I hit the beginning of my final story. I think I had like 10 minutes left in the speech. It's the last story plus the conclusion and the rally cry. And then suddenly I hit the clicker once to advance my slides. And and I think the button stuck or something because it rifled through every remaining slide, kicked out of presentation mode, and the screen just went black. And I just kept, I just kept going like as a speaker and I'm totally bragging here. I felt great. I don't even care in my sickness with this huge, huge issue with all my slides going away and the screen going black. I just kept going. I just plowed through. I did the entirety of that last remaining 10 minutes, zero slides. I improved what needed improving. I delivered just like a performance that the, to end all performances in my career, I just nailed it. And, and the folks at stream even came up to me afterwards and they're like, damn that you're a pro. Like, I can't believe you did that. Um, so I've never felt so good and so lousy at the same time. And, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I got to switch out of bragging mode and, and here, here's maybe a lesson we can take away from that, which is if you're going to be a public speaker, you are not there to read a slide. Like one of the worst ways you can present is to present the slides. That's not the point. Even, you know, right down to the design looking terrible because you got too much information up there. But if you're presenting, you are the focal point, you know? So the only way I know I'm ready today to give a speech is if I don't need a single slide. I could do easily 45 to an hour speech of my usual speeches and, and I don't need my slides. And whenever I try a new bit, I know I'm not ready with that bit yet if I need to lean on the slides. So keynote speakers and just good presentations overall, focus the attention on you as the presenter and you are a proxy by the way for the ideas and the stories not the slides. The slides are a backdrop, color commentary, kind of like maybe even like music like I use in my podcast stories. They assist, they amplify, they improve, but the entire thing could exist without that stuff. So that's on you as a performer. So love telling that story. Thank you for that question, Angela, because I very rarely get to talk about that publicly. And uh, it's part of my, my little stump speech for how to be a good performer. Cool. All right. Next question is Andrew Littlefield, Brooklyn's own Andrew Littlefield, who asks, what was something you didn't anticipate being difficult, but ended up being a challenge writing the book? Getting out of podcast voice and back into writing voice. So a big, big part of my shows, not just unthinkable, but my client shows is scripting. And a big part of that is getting the details in order correctly so that you paint a picture in your brain hearing me speak. And when you read something, you have more visual cues, obviously. So in podcasting, I have to constantly tease that something is forthcoming because there's no visuals. So things like, you know, chapter or headline breaks don't exist and uh, callbacks to themes or ideas presented earlier, they need to be revisited more often in a podcast. Um, and, and so I'm constantly thinking about how can I write better for audio? I'm writing shorter, I'm writing choppier sentences, I'm writing atypical, like not complete sentences, and I'm using what they call signposts, which is moments when me as a narrator, I am pointing things out to you overtly so you don't miss it. There's a little bit of a tell moment throughout the show. There's a, there's a tell element to podcasting, whereas in writing, you want to show, not tell. So that's a very big difference. Um, so there's just a ton of difference and nuance in writing for a book versus writing for audio, but... I did love stretching myself to do like both of those things together during the same months that I was writing the book and kind of move between the two to notice the difference. Cause that was the first time I really compared and contrasted. And basically I feel like, I feel like I've been through an insane 
amount of workouts over the past really three years, but certainly six to 10 months when I was writing the book. And then when you compare my old stuff to my new stuff, I think the difference is probably probably pretty clear that it got stronger. Um, so that's that's the big thing I didn't anticipate being difficult, which was getting out of podcast voice, stop telling, start showing, and getting back into writing voice as a result. Okay, so next question is from Emily Steinman, who asks, how many hours did I write each day? So, uh, so I did two things to structure my writing. First, I once I knew I was going to start writing in earnest, I blocked off every Thursday of my weeks as just for writing the book. No interviews for shows, no phone calls, no client stuff, as little email and social media as possible for someone like me. Uh, if basically, if I wasn't on the road speaking on a Thursday, I was writing the book, period. Like it was, it had to be the rule. And then uh, I would also try to be at my favorite coffee shop in Queens, New York, back when I lived there, the moment it opened in the morning, at least three days a week. And it actually opened pretty late for a coffee shop, like 8 a.m., but I was the first to arrive. My goal was three days a week. I'd order the same drink, sit in the same chair, and start my writing playlist on Spotify and just go, usually until 11 or 11.30, and then I'd walk home and get lunch. Um... So, and by the way, I actually, on my book website, I put links to that exact Spotify playlist. I renamed it so you could find it, but it's the same exact playlist that I used while writing the book in that coffee shop. So if you want to listen to it, you can actually go to my website, jayaconzo.com slash book and scroll to pretty near the bottom of that page and you can find, uh, listen to, and even subscribe to the playlist in Spotify. So, and I, that's the writing playlist I used. And then I built a second playlist also on that page full of my personal favorite songs to get motivated or excited about your day. Uh, so all of that's at jayaconzo.com slash book. All right, next one. Uh, Thomas Hefka. I, I hope I pronounced your name right, Thomas. You've been such an awesome supporter from Germany. And uh, Thomas asks, do you already have a marketing plan for the book? And uh, let's see, he asked this a month ago. So yes, I had a plan probably two months before the published date uh, and, and a few things I've learned. So first of all, paid marketing rarely works unless you're a legitimate celebrity or have a ton of money to blanket the world in your ads. That's sort of the message I got from a lot of authors, but true to form, true to the lessons of my own book, you might be able to make paid marketing work for you given something else you know about your unique situation. But I, I steered clear of paid marketing because I'd already spent money uh, publishing the book. So I didn't want to re-up you know, dipped into that budget for my business and go back to the well for paid marketing, especially when so many people told me it, it didn't work. It's also not my area of expertise. Um, but the things I did include in sort of my world, the, the surface area I cover with all these projects I create, I included a lot of chatter about the book and some behind the scenes stuff on Instagram and Twitter. And I shared a bunch of stuff ahead of time through my newsletter, Damn the Best Practices. So if you're on there, if you're a subscriber, to damn the best practices, thank you, because that is one of my favorite projects ever, not just the ones I do now, ever. Um, let's see, I also put together kind of like a personal CRM spreadsheet of basically people in my life that I want to tell about the work, about the book, from past colleagues to like influential connections, and rather than just say, hey, I wrote a book, please buy it and or share this on social, I decided to do a little extra something for connections of mine which is I built a simple landing page in MailChimp. I branded it for the book. And then I gave a, I, I embedded a custom video that I shot in my home office, personally thanking that given individual. 
So this was like a tiresome couple of days, but I did a video per person. I think I did something like 60 videos, 70 videos, something like that. Um, and, and the reason I did that is when I think about this project, which is the most meaningful thing I've ever done as a lifelong writer and general maker of things. And when I think about the past few years working my ass off as a solo practitioner, I mean, like I have never worked so hard in my life and, and never reached the high highs or low lows that I have as a, an entrepreneur. All of that stuff just came to a head for me after getting my first print copy of the book. This guy right here, um, seriously tapping on the real first print copy of the book right here. Um, I'm like waving it in front of the screen as I, as I answer your questions right now. It's like, I can't put it down. It's just that meaningful to me. And so as, as all that stuff came to a head, the feeling that came to the surface most powerfully was gratitude. So I'm using these landing pages and those videos to express that gratitude to people in a more powerful way than even me as a writer could write in words. I just think I wanted to add my voice, my face, you know, and the, and my words to people that were, were supporters of me early on, are supporters of me now, and, you know, continue to support me and I know will in the future. So, so I, I kind of forgot the question. Um, let me see here. Scroll. Oh, right. Okay. The marketing plan. So to me, books are a gift. And how do you market a gift without cheapening its value? And for my book, it was all about the gratitude that I personally felt as the author, because A, that's genuinely how I felt. Uh, and B, it, it kind of, I don't know. It just felt like, it felt like I was sharing something in a moment with other people as I hold this book in my hand. Man, Thomas, you, you're killing me, man. Um, yeah, this is, this is super meaningful to me. All right, let me move, move on. James Dillon from London asks, what podcasts inspire me? Uh, or he said you, but that's me speaking. So he, what, what podcast inspire me? Jay. Uh, dude, Thomas, you're still in my head, man. <laughs> All right, I got it. Let me give James some more focus here. What podcasts inspire me? Um, there are the usuals that I've been listening to for a while now. Radio Lab, uh, Reply All. But here's some newer ones that maybe you haven't heard of yet. This one's pretty popular, but it's still somehow under the radar in many business circles. It's called The Way I Heard It by Mike Rowe. So The Way I Heard It by Mike Rowe. These are amazingly written and performed six to 10 minute stories. It's just Mike, the former host of Dirty Jobs on Discovery Channel. It's just him reading what he wrote. But he digs up all these hidden backstories of people or moments or products that we all know, but didn't know the backstory in that way, the way I heard it. Uh, and then the reveal of what it is comes only at the very end. So he says it's the only podcast for the curious mind with a short attention span, which I love. Uh, so I love listening. I also love citing this show to other marketers because it's an amazing example of how you actually don't need to spend more money or even more time to create better stories. It's just about how you use the time you're given. You know, Mike doesn't have a huge budget. He's doing a six to 10 minute episode and it's more creative than most people's 45 minute, you know, five hour a week projects in the brand world. So that's the way I heard it by Mike Rowe. Uh, another one, which this is super nerdy. I, I'm going to tell you though, uh, everything is alive from PRX. The idea here is basically everyday objects have a memory and have aspirations in their lives and they talk to those everyday objects. So episodes are like 
Anna an elevator, or Dennis a pillow, or Lewis a can of cola. And they talk about their observations of the world, and it's so just beautifully naive how they view the world, but sometimes it's profoundly insightful about humans that they interact with. Um, it's clever. It pokes fun at the NPR voice and house style. It's just, it's really freaking well written, uh, but it is super nerdy and weird. So it's not for everybody. Everything is alive. All right, let's see. Um, I really like Origins from the author James Andrew Miller, which goes into these big creative institutions like ESPN or SNL to tell the backstory in an oral history fashion, meaning it's lots and lots of people from those organizations. Mostly you just hear their voice bouncing between them uh, to describe different moments in the history. So that's Origins. And then another one staying close to sports like James and Andrew Miller is, uh, is called Breakaway, which is a narrative style podcast about the NBA breakaway. Um, frankly, the writer does not get enough permission from his bosses to make this show because I actually, I DM'd him once to praise the show. And so he works at sports illustrated, one of the most prestigious legendary publications in media, forget just sports. And it was clear from our interactions together that, that his bosses want him to get back to writing more pieces, churning out more stuff, not, not investing so much time in something so artful. Does this sound familiar, my friend? This guy works for Sports Illustrated. So if you're a creator, if you're a marketer, if you're a salesperson, if you're a customer support, an entrepreneur, anything, you are not alone in feeling like you can't be as creative as you can because you don't have the permission, the budget, the time, anything. Uh, so that show is Breakaway. Okay, yeah, that's good. That's, that's plenty of, uh, of podcasts, I think. Melissa Nuzzer. Melissa, my homie from Boston. Uh, she asks, did you experience any self-doubt or second-guessing of yourself when you first thought about writing a book? Like, who do I think I am writing a book? And if so, how did you get over it? So, so I want to admit something to you. I really struggle with answering these questions because, quite frankly, I want to say absolutely uh, because I know this plagues a lot of people and I want to say, absolutely, here's how you can get over that feeling. But if I'm being completely honest, the answer is no. Um, so here's how I view this. Every moment of creation is in some way insane, right? Uh, I remember I read an interview with the late, great Anthony Bourdain and he talked about how you have to be kind of crazy to be like, oh yeah, sure, I'm going to take in the world, I'm going to make sense of it, craft something based on my perspective and my ability to craft something, and then I'm going to put it out into the world and people will just like it and spend time with it. You know, that that's an insane endeavor and belief. So if you don't have a taste for that, that insanity, it's really hard to create, I, I think, anything, not just a book. So... So I just feel like I want so badly to know what will happen if I make something. I want to get out of that that drowning, suffocating feeling of like, I want to do this, but I have to talk to someone else. Or I want to do this, but I couldn't possibly do that. Like, I just want to try it and see. Uh, I think I crave like the adrenaline of making and publishing anything. And I would describe it as I am an emotions junkie. I'm an emotions junkie. I like the way I feel when I'm writing a funny moment or a sad moment or an insightful idea. And then I really like making others feel that same thing when they consume the thing I made. I think there's just something addictive and magical about that. So so yeah, I wish I had a better answer. I, I know I never doubted myself. Who am I to write a book? 
I'm a person who enjoys the process. I'm a, I'm a person focused on getting better and not being amazing with every single thing I do because I'm going to do a lot of things. And so I want my body of work to be amazing and I want my arc to head in the right direction. I don't care if this thing I'm doing right now is great. Yeah, at the same time, I care a ton. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. That's super contradictory. Um, but I think that's all that really, you know, it, it's about improvement. It's about caring about the body of work. And if you're asking why are you worthy or who are you to make something, you're you. And holy crap, if that is not enough reason to do it, that is reason enough in my book. You're you, and that's why you deserve to make something. Um, man, getting deep here. I like that question a lot. So thank you, Melissa. All right, let's do, let's do three more really quick. Dave Cutler from Waltham, Massachusetts asks... Did you have to hire editorial help in lieu of what a publisher might have provided as support? Yes. And oh man, the reason I'm excited about hiring external help, in addition to liking paying good creators, is uh, this is my favorite question because I get to talk about two remarkable human beings, Jordan Teicher and Tyler Litwin. So Jordan was my editor, and I met him through a couple of mutual friends that we share, Joe Lazowskis and Shane Snow, both from the tech company Contently, and both authors in their own right, uh, great authors at that. And Jordan is the company's editor-in-chief at Contently, and he's, he's seriously one of the best editorial minds I've ever worked with. The guy's a true editor. So he can write. He's written from some, for some amazing publications like The New Yorker and The Wall Street Journal, and uh, I also later learned that, learned that this guy is like a killer on the basketball court. He's like 6'5 with a jumper and a handle and a pretty decent post game. And literally one person listening cares about this part right now. And it's probably Jordan. So, um, so here's the deal. So Jordan and I met for coffee. I told him what I wanted to explore. And I shared a document called a book treatment. Um, oh, and that reminds me. I actually got a big assist on that treatment from Josh Burnoff who's another editorial master, and he runs this blog called withoutbullshit.com. I highly recommend that blog if you want to be better as a writer or just get a good laugh at the expense of some corporate blabbers, blab, blab, babblers in this world, just corporate jargon. Um, so the book treatment is basically a description, kind of like the internal book flap and the outline. So I talked through all of that stuff with Jordan, and then he helped me refine it further and then we worked with uh, each other over Google Docs to construct each chapter. And really, he helped with the conceptual organization of each chapter, the stories and the insights, and also the line-by-line line line copy. Um, and one thing to call out here, because it might affect you and your work, Jordan pointed out to me that there is Story J, Teacher J, and Preacher J, and he saw them coming through in the chapters. And at first, he said, I was basically going from Lots of story, Jay, to a lot of preacher, Jay. Uh, surprise, surprise, if you've heard this show before. And we need, we really needed to scale down the ladder and make room for teacher, Jay. So I loved, loved, loved that heuristic. Really helped me. And uh, I mean, the entire process of getting edited for that many months in a row is a total hit to your ego if all you want to be is right. Uh, but the way I like to phrase my desire to improve is that um, I don't want to be right I want to get it right. And Jordan really helped me do that. So thank you, Jordan. The second great human that I have to thank is Tyler Litwin. So Tyler and I have worked together for two different companies before, and he's actually been on Unthinkable, 
the show. So the title of that episode, it's worth checking it out. You have to go back in the backlogs, but it's called The Thoughtless Thought Leader because Tyler has actually created a comedic persona and he gives some talks a couple times a year under the name Orlando Scampington. And basically, Orlando Scampington is a lampooned version of a business thought leader. It's amazing. It's so, so funny. So the man is a comedian. He's a a very accomplished musician. He's a graphic designer and illustrator. Uh, He's just like frustratingly creative and even more annoyingly generous with his time. So when I knew I was going to write this book, I reached out and asked if he'd designed the cover. And he said yes right away. And he killed it like right away. Knocked it out of the park. I think... I think it was such a huge hurdle for so many self-published authors before me to get over this idea that they're self-published because their book looks self-published. And I think it's really tempting when you're spending time and money to create something yourself to skimp on certain areas. And I think design can really kill the credibility if it's not amazing. And Tyler's is amazing. It's I'm so happy with it. Um, so yeah, Tyler, Tyler Litwin, five stars, wood friend again. All right, final two questions. Katie, aka Weird Travel Friend, says that marketing can be clicky AF. Newer or fringe ideas can get a lot of side eye. Uh, What advice do I have for somebody in marketing who's new to the industry and feels like they're being shut out? How do you prove there's real value in your ideas? Love it. How do you prove that there's real value in your ideas? Answer, prove it. So ideas are not cheap. I hate that phrase, that ideas are cheap and execution is everything. I don't believe that. That is a crude, blunt instrument way to think about the world. Having an idea is cheap, but great ideas are very, very valuable. And the key is to show people how yours are not cheap and are valuable by proving it. And so you can prove this, I mentioned before, by launching a side project and actually pointing to something you've done. But let me give you an example, or a heuristic rather, You have to remember what our goal as creators really is. See, our our goal is not to share our ideas. Our goal is to share why our ideas should exist. So Katie, the problem is that others do indeed see your ideas as radical or irrelevant or weird. And as you continue hunting for people who immediately quote unquote get it, at some point you're going to have to work with people who don't. I think gets it is shorthand for doesn't require an explanation. They just get it, right? And we're never going to be able to do truly great work or push through creative ideas into the world if we never have to explain ourselves. It's just, if you if you want to do that kind of work, we have to get good at explaining ourselves. Don't, don't share your idea. Share why your idea should exist. So if you start there, I think you reverse engineer how to communicate your ideas to others. And I call this the green smoothie problem. Uh, basically imagine that I hand you a green smoothie in a glass and you've never heard of a green smoothie or seen one before. You're going to have one of two reactions that are detrimental to my cause of getting you to drink that smoothie. If I'm just like, here, it's a green smoothie, drink it. Either you're going to look for past precedent in your life that suggests why you should or should not drink it. So you might be like, oh, gross. It looks like this grass shot that my gym serves or a kid's drink. And that's too sweet for me. You look for past precedent or you look for social proof. And, and Katie, it sounds like the past precedent issue hit you, hence all the side eye. You know, oh, she's an outsider, or we have been doing this work forever, so we have all this precedent. We know how we do things around here. Um, okay, so imagine instead 
I shared not the smoothie, but why the smoothie should exist first. I think that might sound like this. So, hey guys, remember last time we talked, you told me that you want to be healthy. And then you also said that you think all those health drinks out there are gross. So here's what I'm thinking. What if we take some mango, some pineapple, a little slice of apple, some kale, and a little protein powder and mix together a little coconut oil into that drink? And then I noticed that we actually have a blender in the kitchen down the hall. So if you want to be healthy and you think that all those other drinks are gross, then boom, it's a green smoothie. Want to drink it? Okay, so now you're going to have one of two reactions again, but this time both of them work in my favor. So either you're going to be like, yes, oh my gosh, I totally get it. I will happily drink it. Or you're going to point to a reason that you disagree, you know, so I can actually now converse with you. You're going to be like, yeah, I sort of see where you're coming from, but I don't like the idea of kale. And I can say, no problem. Let's discuss why kale matters. And I'll, I'll handle that objection. Or I can say, no problem. I'll go, I'll take it out or I'll put in something different. Basically by laying out my thinking, People never lapse into this issue that they have when we just present an idea, which is that they have an information disadvantage. When we simply hand them the idea, share the idea, share the green smoothie, we know how we arrived there and they don't. Even if we arrived there instantly in our minds, they haven't taken the same path you have in life or in your rational thought process. And so they have to fill in all these blanks themselves. And so the goal is to avoid that that information disadvantage because when it exists they tend to put the idea on you and disagree with you but when you close the gap now they see where you're coming from and it becomes objective it's about getting it right rather than being right which is a phrase i already used today but it's exactly what we want so katie it's not that they're rejecting you it's they're rejecting the ideas it's not that the ideas are bad it's that you have to get better at explaining why the idea should exist. And to do that, you have to start with what they want, pair it with what they believe about that work, and then lay out all of your thinking in logical step-by-step fashion. And then to my last point, which was the blender down the hall in the kitchen, what will it take, the resources? Last week, you said you want to be healthy. You said you believe all those drinks are gross. Here's all the ingredients I'm thinking about. And oh, by the way, it's gonna take just this blender down the hall. Now, boom. It's a green smoothie. It's my idea. Want to drink it? Want to go with it? Do you like it? What do you think? Let's have a conversation. Let's get it right. Don't sell your ideas. Don't share your ideas. Share why your ideas should exist. It's an atypical, counterintuitive way to communicate, but it's how people learn and how people get on board with ideas, especially if they've never done that idea before. Okay. I want to end with this. This is Jessica Kinsey from Tulsa. How long have you planned to write a book? Have you been preparing for it all along? So I I am of the belief, and it's a firmly held, just emotionally fraught belief, that when you make things, anything at all, you have been preparing to make that your entire life. In other words, the body of work you've created is what matters because it leads you to the next step and the next step and the next step. So you cannot, you can't like rip apart any of my old projects that seem irrelevant to writing a book and be like, that has nothing to do with break the wheel. It all led to me writing this book. Uh, now, sometimes that's irrelevant at first glance, like a trip I went on when I was a kid or 
Uh, it could be a side project about sports that I wrote when I was just out of school and I was working for Google and I felt no creativity whatsoever. So I launched a side project about sports. Uh, whatever it is, it could seem totally irrelevant at first glance, but I promise you that stuff matters. And that, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about bringing my full self to the work. Um, so I will give you this answer in the because basically I have been preparing all along my entire life to do everything I'm doing right now because it's about the body of work. Um, so let me give you this answer in terms of proactive, conscious thought. I am going to write Break the Wheel, the book. Um, so I've had a vague but burning desire to write a book since basically high school. It wasn't Break the Wheel, obviously, but I wanted to write a book. And that's really when I started falling in love with writing and my English classes. And in particular, I had an amazing teacher named, named Jack Shred who is sadly no longer with us, but he inspired me in a way few teachers ever did to care about story, to fall in love with emotions and, and triggering emotions when you make something or when you hand the thing you've made to someone else. Uh, and you can actually hear my ode to Mr. Shred a few episodes ago here in the Unthinkable Feed. I think it's like three episodes ago. It's a short story called The Shredder. So anyway, so whether it was in college after that, uh, where I wanted to be a sports journalist and interned at print publications and at ESPN, or after college, where I created literally dozens of side projects. Like, I think I counted 30 different side projects in a recent edition of my newsletter, and then I actually found a few more that I forgot to send out. So I've just been a serial maker, and I knew all the while that a book had to be a part of that, but then it got really specific, which is about two years ago, I left my day job in venture capital to focus on making shows and public speaking as a profession. And, uh, and I knew the culmination of the first part of that journey would be to write a book. So uh, first unthinkable, the podcast would be a vehicle to tell stories and aerate ideas and work with others who are listening, AKA you to eventually write this thing. Uh, but I also knew that as a speaker, books help you raise your rate. They help you win gigs. They help you. Uh, it's, it's basically the best business card you could hand to somebody so that's why I don't care about tons and tons of sales. I care about, you know, a couple of things. I care about adding more value to people like you. And I care about adding value to people who might hire me to speak or to make shows. I don't care about selling this to millions of people, even though if you think about reaching that mark at some point, it would in, in this, it would probably like catch some of the right people as well. But rather than catch a wide net scattershot style, I'm more of a sniper. Um, so really, for the past two years, I was more intentional about writing the book. Books help speakers' careers, and although it sounds nice, I don't have to be a bestseller or ranked on any Forbes list or anything like that. Um, by the way, thank you so much for being a part of that group, that that sniper shot I'm focused on, because this book really is is written for you. And it's the most meaningful project I've ever worked on. And I worked on it just because I wanted it to exist. It was for me. But if your early reactions are any indication at all, I think I found that Venn diagram overlap. And so this is also for you. So I want to end by saying thank you for your support, for your encouragement, for your readership and listenership and viewership, for your kinship. So thank you. It's because of you that I wrote this book. So I hope you love reading it as much as I loved writing it. Above all, though, when the rest of the world keeps churning out commodity work, I hope you'll refuse to settle. I hope you'll focus on making the best possible decisions for your situation, your unique situation, in order to do your best work. 
So as always, I am your host, but for the first time, I'm signing off as author, what? Author Jay Akunzo. I kind of like the sound of that. While so many companies and careers get stuck in this endlessly spinning wheel of best practices, conventional thinking, and trendy new tactics, I hope this book can be your sledgehammer. Go break the wheel. Woo! Yes! Today! Ah!